I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest lost her sight to a rare autoimmune condition combined with uveitis and glaucoma. She's undergone chemotherapy and 33 surgeries to save her just small piece of remaining sight, which is essentially 2% of tunnel vision. And she continues these treatments every three months, so she has to balance surgery in America while racing hard overseas. That's right, racing hard. Triathlon has given Amy Dixon a new path forward, and she's grateful to represent her country as a professional athlete despite overwhelming odds. Amy is the reigning Aquathon world champion, U.S. national champion triathlete, USA paracycling time trial national champion, and she's ranked sixth in the world in Paralympic international rankings. She's a Tokyo 2021 Paralympic hopeful. And the mantra that she lives by every single day, it's you don't need to have sight to have vision. Listen up to find out how Amy went from gaining over 70 pounds during her eye treatments to becoming an elite athlete with some serious drive and determination. You're in for a treat with this one. But before we talk to Amy, I want you to go and subscribe to this show right now. Go ahead and pause and subscribe because I don't want you to miss a single episode. The very next one, it could be the one that's going to inspire you to go to the next level, to dig you out of what current state you're in, to grow you and help you move forward. And while you're there subscribing, go ahead and rate and review us because those reviews really do help us continue to bring on these amazing guests. Are you ready? I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode with Amy Dixon. Amy Dixon, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. We are so honored to have you here today. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate it. Okay. I I absolutely love so many things about your story. I love that you're an older athlete like myself. Um, (laughs) But also, I have to point something out first because you're a sommelier, right? Yes. Okay. Now I watched a documentary on people trying to become one and how difficult and insane that is. Is it like a super long, hard process? It's usually an eight year certification process. And there's a couple different governing bodies, you know, like how we have for diving and triathlon and whatnot. There's the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, which is based in London. And then there's the Society of Wine Educators here in the United States. And so I went with the society. I, I actually did both. But I went further along in the Society of Wine Educators. And it's a wonderful process. Um, it's a lot of a lot of tasting, a lot of blind tasting, and you know, assessing wines based on region, learning what the vintage, specific vintages are, specific soil types. So it's a really good chance to geek out and tap into my former aspirations as as a scientist. So oh, that's so cool. Now, I, did it take yeah. you the full like eight years to do that? Yeah, it, it 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 sure did. And uh yeah, I, I'm so very grateful that I did it. That's so intense. Now, okay, my husband and I have an anniversary trip coming up. Is there like a good wine you would recommend for me? I always say like wine is so individual. It's sort of like asking somebody how they like their coffee. You know, like somebody likes <laughs> right. it like light and sweet, somebody likes it black, somebody likes it mostly milk with a little splash of coffee. <laughs> so I like and that usually gives me an idea of people's palates because it tells me how much sugar sugar they tolerate or enjoy. So how do you take your coffee or tea or do you drink coffee or tea? I, I love coffee um, and I do love a good amount of milk in it, you know, but I do like some coffee flavor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And no sugar, I assume. Right. Well, maybe a okay. little, maybe just a little, maybe a little, like, are you a vanilla person? Yes. Or, yes. So like a vanilla latte was, is kind of your jam. Yeah. Yeah. That'll work. Okay. So like something like that for white, like I would say Chardonnay is probably a little bit too fruity for you. Um, but somewhere, you know, so, and Sauvignon Blanc might be too acidic. So somewhere in between like Chenin Blanc from the Loire Valley in France is always a nice starting point. Um, they make some really nice uh, Chenin Blancs from that area and also South Africa. So they have a little hint of residual sugar where like it's just not sweet, but there's some fruitiness to there without being cloying. And again, if you like a milky coffee, like you kind of like that rounder texture and Chenin Blanc tends to have a nice round texture to it. So, oh my gosh, always- you're just so cool. Yeah. I mean, you were already cool. Now you're just like, you, your cool scale has gone up in my opinion. 
but but I have to I have to ask you one more one more wine question before we actually get sure. into like yeah, wine. Yeah, I, I talk wine all day. We can we can make this a wine podcast. No, it's triathlon. Okay, so you have to tell me the truth here. Are the super expensive bottles really that much better than like the moderately cheap ones? <laughs> well, it's like saying you know is a Porsche better than a souped up uh, like a, a a really souped up Honda? Ooh. You know, it, it's a case of the parts are going to be more expensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and harder to find and things like that. But the lesser expensive of them may be a little bit more reliable. At the very t- top of, of wines, when you're talking about uh, first growth Bordeaux is the upper echelon of, of, of the wine world. We're talking, you know, like thousand dollar bottles upon release. Whoa. And it's because they're, there's a lot of history. A, it's, you're paying for a lot of the history of the vineyard where the winery has been around for 100, 200 years and shows a track record of having very consistent uh, clim- climactic conditions and very consistent soil and winemaking styles. So you're paying for the reliability uh, and the and the nuance of that, that wine will likely age for 40 to 50 years. So you're paying for the potential of that wine and also for the possible auction value down the road. But 95% of wine is built to drink within its first two years of bottling. So people really? like your average $10 bottle off the shelf is not going to age 10 or 15 years. You're going to want to drink it in the first couple of years of bottling it. So I think that the magical price point, you can find spectacular wines for 15 to $18, like really interesting, cool, fun stuff that will actually blow the doors off of some 40 and $50 stuff. For me, because I don't go out very often because I have training and I go to bed so early. So now I don't drink as often, but I drink, I drink less often, but better because I think of it this way. If I go out to a, uh, uh, to dinner and have a bottle of wine that uh, if it's me and one friend, we're probably not going to finish it because I'm a lightweight these days, <laughs> but you're going to spend like $15 or to, to $18 for a real decent glass of wine in, in most restaurants these days, which is kind of frustrating when you know that bottle costs like maybe, maybe 30, 25, 30. Right. So I'd rather buy like a nice $40 bottle of wine and have it at home you know, once a week with some friends or once every couple of weeks. And that way I'm like, oh, I'm drinking way better for less money. So yeah, so that's, but I really find like if, if you're an everyday kind of wine drinker, that 15 to $18 price point is magical. Uh, okay. You just, yes. Thank you. That's going to make our anniversary trip really, really nice. So for all of you of age listeners, I hope that was some great insight for you guys. <laughs> so now we'll get into why you're really here, Amy. And, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I, okay. So I love so much of your story, but I want to start with right now, obviously 2020 is not what we expected and totally. the Olympics and Paralympics have been postponed for an entire year. Things look a lot different than we expected. Like how has the pandemic affected you and your training? It has been very challenging, you know, it, like on the one hand, as you, as you, you as an athlete can, can completely relate, you don't want to complain because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have our health, you know, we've got our families, our families are healthy and that has to be the number one priority. I mean, the Olympics is, you know, yes, it is a very, very important event in our lives and in the lives of, of professional athletes, but you, you can't get there if you're not healthy. So from a fundamental level, yes, I'm grateful that it was postponed because it was the right call. And, you know, like, and it doesn't make it feel any better for me as an athlete, mm-hmm. um, especially in, as an older athlete. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 44 and I was laughing. I'm like, oh, I'm going to finally go to the Olympics before my 45th birthday. Well, <laughs> the heck with that. I guess I'll be 45 <laughs> next year. I'm like, dang it. Um, I'm only two but, years behind you, so I can totally relate. I totally get it. Right? I'm like, oh. <laughs> And so, and I laugh because everybody's like, well, you know, like if, you know, and you know, there's all the rumors swirling around like, oh my gosh, if this continues, what if it gets canceled completely? And I'm like, oh gosh, I, like I'm trying not to even, can't even think that. that way. Yeah. I can't even think that way because it's, it, it takes so much off the table incentive and for so many reasons, it's, it's just not a good train of thought for me at this point. I don't think for any of us, I don't think it's a productive rabbit hole to go down. But, you know, they're like, oh, are you thinking of Paris in 2024? I'm like, hell no, (laughs) certainly not in triathlon. Um, You know, it's, as you know, it's just brutal on your body. And, you know, I'm competing against 20 year olds and uh, in 20, like one of my best friends and competitors, she's 27 years old, who's actually coming out here from Great Britain next month to train with me for a bit, which will be nice. It'll be nice to have somebody like fast and strong and young to train with that I get along really well. But you know, she's got a long career ahead of her. And, you know, this is, this is my one and done shot. And um, I didn't start triathlon until seven years ago. And we'll get into the story in a minute, but um, so I'm a little bit of a late bloomer and, and now my body is sort of like 
this is really, really hard. And, and, uh, I, I always laugh that I'm held together with duct tape and glue. I mean, I spent <laughs> so much on physio, like we, we call it putting Humpty Dumpty back together every, every week. It's like, okay, what did you break this week? Or what did you bust up or what's hurting? And it's just like, Oh, it's, it's my right shoulder and my left hip and my left glute and then my left ankles locking up and, you know, all this stuff and you just laugh. And so you get, you get put back together between the chiropractor, the acupuncturist, the massage therapist, the PT, the active release technique therapist. And it's like, okay, go out and break yourself again. I'll see you next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, it's really hard. And for me, my disease that caused me to lose my sight is an autoimmune condition. So particularly now, you know, I, I laugh, I mean, I hate to say I told you so, but it's sort of like this with the pandemic, I've lived my whole life like this, as far as being, you know, socially distant, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, or I, I prefer the word physically distant because socially distant, it, it sounds really um, heartbreaking in, on some level. We had a sports think- psychologist that said exactly the same thing that says, I don't like to say it's socially distance. We need to still like socially connect, but we can physically distance each other. Physically like- distance, just stay yeah. six feet away from people. And, and if you're sick, stay home. V- very simple math. Um, and wash your bloody hands. So, <laughs> And, but I mean, like my sister has lupus and I have this disease that took my sight. And so my whole life I've worn masks on planes. My whole life I've carried Clorox wipes when I go on a plane, I wipe every surface of the seat belt and the seat and the armrest and the, and the tray table and the overhead thing. And if somebody's coughing, I ask to be moved or, uh, you know, things like that. So I, it's, this has been my whole life. And so I'm, I'm kind of, and so people are freaking out that they can't do anything. I said, no, you can, you can still live your life and travel. You just have to be smart about, you know, your surroundings and who you're sitting next to and, and being conscious of, of staying healthy and having good, good hygiene practices. It's not rocket science. Anyway, that's my, my soapbox regarding COVID. But um, as far as this affecting me, it's affected me in ways that I didn't expect initially. Cause I was like, okay, adversity is kind of what I do because, you know, I've been through a lot with my disease and, and losing my sight. And so I'm like, this is just another, you know, bump in the road. And then as, as time has gone on, it's taken a greater and greater toll. And then I ended up um, becoming sick and, and then, then injured during COVID um, really my own doing because of stress, honestly, to the point where, you know, I've developed some really unhealthy habits as far as anxiety is concerned and really working hard on trying to get those managed at, at this point with you know, the team of sports psychologists and dietitians and uh, just trying to manage stress because it, it's manifested itself in, in ways that I would not have expected. I think that's an important thing to note because stress, sometimes we just don't, ah, you know, it's just the way you feel, whatever, but it, it comes out physically in, in a lot of different ways. So that's really important to recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you just had surgery, right? For your tailbone. And I think you had I did. Yeah. Like, I don't recommend had... using, don't recommend landing on your butt when you're riding a tandem. So two years ago, my pilot, so I'm visually impaired uh, for your listeners, um, which means that a normally sighted person has 180 degrees of peripheral vision from right to left and top to bottom. Um, there's two different kinds of blindness. There's visual acuity blindness, which is your ability to read and recognize faces. That's how blurry things are and how clearly you can see and, and, and your ability to see color. Uh, the other type of blindness or vision loss is peripheral, which is the kind of loss that I have. And like I said, 180 degrees is normal sight for most people. Out of 180 degrees, I only have five degrees left. So it's like a very small sliver. If you're looking at a clock, it's basically, you know, from 12 o'clock to halfway to one o'clock. So that little window is all I can see. And, but I can see pretty clearly. So I can still read through that little hole. Um, it's like looking through a keyhole. And I have what's called photopsia, where everything is strobing and flashing. So it's kind of like looking at a TV set that keeps cutting in and out. And you want to smack the top of it for those of those. Those who are of our generation in their 40s will understand this, you know, an old gravity or television yeah. <laughs> yeah, with an antenna. So something that's cutting it, like the screen is cutting in and out or, or like a shutter closing really quickly on a camera lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get pictures of images and then they disappear very quickly. And so if something walks by me or, or moves, a car moves, moves past me during one of those flashes, I won't even have known that it was ever there. So that's where I, I always joke and say that my guide dog has job security because like if I, if I miss it during that window of vision that I do have, like I'm just going to step out into the street. So my, my dog is definitely uh, in charge of those decisions and, and the woman that I race with, who is my guide. So 
the higher my heart rate is, the faster that flashing occurs. Uh, So the less I can see. So above a heart rate of 160, uh, 162 to 165, which is where I am when I'm racing. Uh, I, I don't have any vision at all. So my, my guide, I, I race with a woman who runs bikes and swims in tandem with me. So she's connected to me by uh, an a, a elastic bungee cord around our, each of our th- upper thigh. And then when we race on the bike, we race on a tandem bike. She's in the front in charge of steering, braking and shifting. Um, we both provide power to the bike. And then finally, we run uh, tethered at my waist by an elastic cord that's about a, a one and a half feet long. Wow. And yeah. so, so how did you fall? Like you fell and then you, but you, you fell like two years ago, right? Yeah. So it was literally like four days before world championships. We were in Australia and we just went out for like a shakeout ride. And we had actually heard about this cool sanctuary that had koalas and kangaroos. And we're like, oh, it'd be so fun to bike out there. It was like 20 miles each way. I'm like, oh, good. We've got like a two hour ride on tap. That's perfect. And we'll, we'll pack some snacks and maybe have lunch out there. And it was kind of like a tropical rainforest kind of area. And well, it was certainly tropical rainforest because it started to pour about 18 miles into the ride. Uh. And at that point the road forked and we picked, we could, it was raining so hard, like Kirsten and I couldn't even read the road signs. And so we took a wrong turn. And so she went to bang a U-turn in the middle of the road. And we, we just ran out of real estate as far as the road was concerned. And there was a ditch. And so just, laid the bike down. And it's so funny. Cause like, I always worry about her getting hurt. Cause she tends to Kirsten, um, for those who don't know her, Kirsten Sass is one of the top triathletes in the country. Um, herself, she's won, I think 12 national titles. She was USA triathlon's athlete of the year, three years in a row, wow. um, age group athlete of the year. So she's a non-pro, um, and she won eight world titles in triathlon, duathlon, aquathon. She's gone to Kona several times as a long-distance athlete. She's a very, very accomplished triathlete. So sometimes when our, when the schedule works out at, at different world championships that we're racing at, sometimes she's able to race in the age group race and also guide me for the paratriathlon race. Wow. And so we were, so she, like, it depends, you know, as, as long as they're not like back to back or whatever, or like, and she gets enough recovery in between the two races. I mean, she's super strong. So she's way faster than me. So, you know, my race pace is like, you know, she can talk <laughs> while we're racing and, and, and uh, tell me where to go and things like that. So it's not a huge challenge for her. And so she was racing the day before I was. So I was really concerned about her getting injured. And so I literally stuck my butt out as we were falling thinking, Oh my gosh, I can't let Kirsten get hurt. Well, I ended up taking the brunt of two, 240 pound women coming down on a bike and, and landing on my tailbone and, uh, which does not have any padding, by the way, it's not the cushiony part of your butt. (laughs) And, um, and I knew as soon as I hit the pavement that it was broken, but I, again, she was so, she felt horrified and so bad because it, you know, it, it happens. It, you know, she just made a mistake when we were turning and it is what it is, but she felt terribly guilty and I didn't want to make her feel bad. So I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, and sure enough, uh, I wasn't fine. And I spent the next three days laying face down in the hotel room before the world championships in tears. Cause and it, you, as a professional athlete, you can't take any narcotic pain meds. Um, unless you get like a therapeutic use exemption. And, you know, I just wasn't willing, you know, I was like just trying to tough it out. And luckily we actually had a decent physio with us who did um, some dry needling on my tailbone to keep me as as pain managed as we could. And I thought, well, my race is only an hour. Like I can do anything for an hour. It's not going to, it just hurts. I'm not going to hurt myself per se by racing. And so I didn't have the best race that I've ever had. I had a decent race and and you're going on adrenaline that whole hour. So honestly, it didn't hurt at all. I was racing. I was fine. Afterwards wasn't so fun. And the 17 hour flight home from Australia wasn't great. I made, I made good friends with the flight attendants by just hanging out in like the little galley area. I'm like, Uh, hi, I'm Amy. I'm just going to hang out with you because I can't sit. uh, So (laughs) not fun. Not fun. So yeah. So here we are two years later, I had a whole bunch of scar tissue and I actually tore a ligament in my, uh, in my butt. So, uh, so that sacrococcygeal ligament that attacks your, that attaches your sacrum and your tailbone. And it's been very painful and I've had so much work on it done. And I was managing it with the ex- expectation that this summer was supposed to be Tokyo. And I was like, okay, you know, it is, it is what it is. And we'll just, you know, it's pain. It's not going to, it's not going to be detrimental to me, like to, to continue to train like this, it's just going to hurt. And so I was managing it with, you know, acupuncture and things like that. And then after the uh, Paralympics and Olympics got delayed, I decided to go ahead and get a procedure done, uh, like an epidural on the tailbone, which did not go according to plan. So I had that done 
three weeks ago, and it's actually been a little better. I would say about 30% better, which is, you know, I'll take it. It's a step in the right direction. It's definitely not a fix. I was hoping it was going to be the miracle cure, which it was not. So onward and upward. I I understand that. I I feel like I've had a lot of things that I was just thinking, okay, I'll get this done and then it'll be fine. And it just, it's not ever what you expect. But I mean, you obviously are tough. You, uh, you know, did your world championships with a broken tailbone and was like, (laughs) No problem. So uh, hopefully you can. Find I seem, I seem to have really bad luck at Worlds. Like I broke my broke my wrist two days before World Championships, like the, the year before. So oh my <laughs> like I really and my guy, she laughed. She's like, "We're just going to start putting you in bubble wrap. Like this is that's it." Or you're She's just like, going to be the six million dollar woman. That's what you're going to be. You're gonna <laughs> yeah. be. Like the bio woman, the the half <laughs> half woman, half cyborg, or something. That'll be cool. <laughs> I just like doing things the hard way. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that's most elite athletes kind of are the same way. So we're not too different that way. But well, will you take us through the story of your vision loss? Because you were full sighted when you were younger and it happened around college age. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, uh, as far as we know, I was fully sighted. But one of the interesting things I, I got diagnosed when I was 22, I was waiting tables at night in order to pay for college and um, noticed that everything was strobing and flashing. Like I said, it's, now, now I know what it is. It's called photopsia. But you know, I'd suffered from migraines since I was nine years old. And um, so, which they probably believe was the onset of this disease, ironically. Um, and so I thought it had something to do with my migraines because sometimes you get get what's called an aura or like a flashing lights before you get a headache. But I didn't have a headache. So I, I didn't really understand what was going on. So I ignored it, you know, as, as most kids do. And I didn't have any health insurance, so I couldn't afford to go to the doctor even if I wanted to. So I was just like, okay, it is what it is. And it happened to be during midterms. And I was, you know, going to school full time and working full time at night, burning the candle at both ends. So I, you know, I just wrote it off as like, oh, maybe I'm overtired and I'll take a couple of days off once midterms are over. And it didn't get better. And then I ended up having great difficulty driving at home one night where the glare from an oncoming car caused me to like run off the road. I didn't get hurt or anything like that, but it scared me enough that I was like, gee, wow, that was really weird. And then I started going to pour, like it was a fine dining restaurant. And so I would go to pour like a glass of wine or a glass of water and I would start missing the glass or I would go you know, it was super busy Friday nights and you go running in and out of the kitchen to go get an order. And I would like slam into the bus boys or something. And they're like, what the hell? Watch where you're going. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were there. They're like, I'm right in front of you, you dumbass. <laughs> so like, I just had all these clumsy moments. And I remember my mom came to visit me and she looked at me and I had all these bruises and she was convinced that my boyfriend was beating me up. Oh no. And uh, I was like, no, I'm like, I swear. She's like, nobody has that many bruises and like, doesn't have like a story to tell about it. So what's going on. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just clumsy. And so I was overdue to be refilled for my migraine medication by my neurologist. And I've had him since I was a kid. So he knew me really well, but it was really expensive. It was like a $200 office visit. And so I had to save up all my tips in order to afford to even go, but he like, I needed the medication. So I didn't have a choice. So I went and that's when he, you know, him and I were chatting and I told him, I said, yeah, I feel like keep bumping into things stuff. It's really weird. And I said, I'm having a hard time seeing at night. And, and so he held his fingers out to the side. And he's like, how many fingers am I holding up? And I said, I don't, I don't know. Your arm's missing. He's like, well, that's not normal. He's like, did you, did you have a blow to the head recently or a concussion? I'm like, yeah, you know, a couple months ago, I was um, also working part-time in the mornings before school, mucking stalls and taking care of horses and feeding them because I grew up on a horse farm and um, then just loved being around horses and thought that it was a good way to do it. So I got clocked in the head by one of the horses while, while I was feeding him. Oh. And he's like, yeah. He goes, how long has this been going on? I'm like, well, a few months. And he goes, well, maybe you detached your retina when you hit your head. Um, he's like, he's like, you need to go see an ophthalmologist. So I was like, yeah, I'm like, sure, sure. I'll get around to that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm like, I was ready to not go to an ophthalmologist because I didn't have any more money to go to an ophthalmologist. And it was another specialist. I was like, just give me my medication so I can go home. But he sort of figured out very quickly that I was not going to go see the, the specialist that he recommended. So he actually called his secretary into the room and said, cancel my afternoon appointments. Amy and I are going to go for a little walk. And thank God he did that because he marched my butt right downstairs into the eye doctor's office and sat with me until they brought me in and wow. literally forced me to go. And um, I was I say I was being held hostage. And <laughs> that's when they took one look in the back of my eye. And the first thing they asked me is if I had been sick recently, which I thought was a really weird question. And I said, yeah, I had like a sinus infection, you know, change of seasons. It was like October, 
usually I get a sinus infection like every September and every March, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get more allergy related and then it becomes a sinus infection. I go on the Z-Pack for a week and I'm fine. And uh, he's like, and they all said, huh, you know, they're all like grunting and then they're whispering amongst themselves. And I thought, can somebody just clue me in on what's going on? And, and uh, that's when they said I had this rare eye condition that was called uh, a form of uveitis, which is an inflammatory autoimmune eye disease. And it's caused by an underlying autoimmune condition that sends antibodies against the retina and causes permanent scar tissue to form all around the periphery. So I was losing my sight from the outside in. And um, so that's why, you know, I was starting to bump into things and my depth perception was constantly changing and and things like that. And and so I said, okay, well, how do you fix it? And they're like, well, you don't. And they said, this is, you know, you're going to be blind and probably within the next year and you need to, you know, make arrangements. And I was like, are you I, are you effing kidding me? Like, I'm like, I, I was like, you guys are nuts. Like, I see fine. I, my vision's 2020. Like, cause on the chart, I was 2020 because straight ahead, I had great vision. I was like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a, a problem with my eyes. Maybe it's like, you know, has to do with my headaches or something, whatever. And, um, or maybe it's because of this concussion or something. And so I sort of marched out of there, uh, rather abruptly and continued to ignore it for a few weeks until, again, I had a problem uh, driving at night, and I thought, okay, I need to look into this more seriously. And then uh, the Cliff Notes version is I spent the next next couple of years, you know, trying to fight my disease and uh, put myself into major uh, financial crisis as far as I put everything on credit cards as a kid because I had no health insurance. So I put myself about $45,000 in debt, um, having MRIs and CT scans and seeing all these specialists. The blessing was that they were able to slow down the progression of my disease by putting me on high-dose steroids, but I gained 75 pounds. Wow. And so that's when I found triathlon, essentially, because I was a former swimmer um, all through, um, since I was five years old, I was on swim team and all through high school. I didn't swim in college because uh, my focus was pharmacy and that I want, you know, I wanted to focus on school and I also needed to work. So I had no time to do sports. Um, and, uh, I was trying to figure out the one thing that I could do safely with limited vision that would get some of the weight off. And swimming was the first thing that was suggested to me. So I started doing actually those little, like, with some little old ladies, those aqua fit classes. Oh, yeah. Little foam dumbbells. And I felt so weird and out of place. But everybody was so sweet and inviting. And at this point now, my vision loss had progressed to where I needed a cane and then, and then later a guide dog. And my first guide dog was a yellow lab. And so I, uh, Donna De Verona, who's a former Olympic swimmer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's amazing. Big legend. She yeah. She's amazing. And she's like with the first female sportscaster on ABC's Wide World of Sports. And she's with the Women's Sports Foundation, an incredible mentor. And as it happens, she happens to be a member at the YMCA where I was, uh, where I was swimming. And they had a fundraiser for the Y. It was to swim a mile and you like, you could raised five dollars per lap or something and um but i hadn't swam a mile in 20 years <laughs> i was like oh gosh and i again still 70 pounds overweight and i knew of her but i didn't recognize her necessarily and so i had a lap counter everybody had a lap counter and at the end of the the mile swim it took me forever because i had to do breaststroke and backstroke because i was so out of shape and this woman put this medal around my neck and I, re- I realized that it was Donna Dave Verona. And I was so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my gosh, she must think I'm so fat and slow. Oh. And, uh, but, it was, but she was so sweet and so encouraging. And, um, and after that, I decided that I really wanted to get more serious about swimming and, and, and get in the pool more often. And then I started doing some spin classes at my YMCA. And then later, I really wanted to be able to run because historically that was always the fastest way for me to lose weight. So I started jogging on a treadmill while holding on and putting an elastic band around my waist so I didn't fall off with my limited sight. And through social media, someone said, you're swimming and you're biking and you're running. Why don't you think about doing a triathlon? I was like, that sounds like fun, but terrifying. Like, how does that even work? And they're like, oh, no, you don't do it by yourself. You do it with with another person who's your eyes and they tell you where to go and they help you navigate and and you ride on a tandem bike. I was like, cool, I don't have a tandem bike, but let's try it. So we, a woman borrowed a tandem bike from a guy in New York City and I did my first triathlon seven years ago. Wow. Okay. So that was a whole lot. I mean, I love your story and I love how you're like giving it to me all in a nutshell, but like we got to dive into some of this stuff. I mean, okay, cool. you're, you're 22 years old and these doctors are telling you you're going blind. And I mean, obviously at first you're like total denial, like this is, you guys are crazy, whatever. But like, 
when you began to say, okay, something is wrong here, like how are you handling that emotionally? Because I just, I can't imagine having something that you, you know, you use and take for granted every day, like our our vision, like, and just suddenly it's going to be gone. Like, how did you deal with that emotionally? I not well, I was very angry. I was not very nice to people. (laughs) Um, I was scared mostly because, you know, I was living with my college boyfriend and I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to dump me because I'm going to suddenly become such a burden. You know, like I'm not going to be able to do anything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to move back in with my family. And while I love my family, I really didn't want to, I really, (laughs) really didn't want to do that because I've been living on my own since I was 17. And so I was like, oh my, that, that for me seemed like the worst fate on the planet. And my only frame of reference, honestly, living, you know, an hour outside of New York City was, you know, the times that I'd go into the city and I would see like homeless people on the subway that were blind, that were panhandling. And I thought, oh my God, is that going to be my life? Like, is that what happens to blind people? Like Scary you thought. can't work. And so you have to like live on the street. If you, if you don't, if you can't live with your family, what do you do? Like you, you can't work. Like, uh, I mean, you can't do anything like you know, what if I fall off the subway platform? Like, I'm like, oh my, how does this even work? And so I had no idea and I had known nobody who was blind and nobody who was visually impaired that was succeeding or successful or like very able-bodied in other ways. And so I just envisioned it to be the worst possible death sentence in, in my opinion. And so what what got you out of that thought? Like, how did you begin to transition? Because you are this super positive, like, go after everything kind of person, at least now. Like, how did you transition those thoughts? Well, I sunk myself into my love of riding horses again, because I thought, like, shoot, life is too short to not do what you love. And, you know, I was in school to become a pharmacist. And I, I, I they made it very clear to me that I was not going to be able to be a blind pharmacist. And I, I was heartbroken because I'd spent my own money, you know, like I wasn't on scholarship or anything like that. I was working my way through school and, you know, paying my tuition as I went by, by waiting tables. And so all that money that I worked so hard and all those credits that I worked so hard to earn, like now seemed like they were for nothing. And at the time, and then my dad died and I had stopped riding when I was in college because I couldn't afford to. And my dad, I forgot because he had, ha- he was uh, in a wheelchair before he passed and uh, was pretty sick. And I forgot that he still had a horse that he had owned in upstate New York that was like semi-retired at a very young age. And when I found out in the reading of the will from my grandmother, like, oh yeah, the horse is going to you. I'm like, that's awesome. And I'm super excited because I haven't ridden in a really long time, but I have no money to take care of a horse, Mm -hmm. let alone like I'm barely able to pay rent and have my car payment and things like that. Like, you know, I was still driving and everything. Yeah. And I I was like, I just inherited a very expensive mouth to feed and, uh, and no money to take care of him. So I I was really pleased and horrified at the same time, but then I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I, I thought, well, maybe this is the plan or this is a sign, you know, like, I've missed riding for so many years. My boyfriend at the time was very supportive. He says, listen, this is something you've talked about how much you've missed. Maybe this is the time to go for it and just, you know, sink your teeth into that. And so I didn't know how far I was going to go. And I, did, I hadn't even seen this horse in years. And so literally pulled him out of a field on 300 acres. And he was like covered in burrs and muddy and matted. And I was like, oh, my God. And he was a hot mess. And so, you know, I started conditioning him and, and then I brought up, moved him down closer to my house and I started working at the stable in exchange for a roof over his head and feeding him. And Oh, that's cool. You know, so I just tried to find a way to, to make it happen. And, and I was so blissfully happy and, you know, I was dirt poor, but I was so happy. And I thought, well, maybe this, maybe this is it. And so continued my studies in equine business management at college um, at, at the University of Connecticut. And I was super, super happy. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to lose my sight, I want to get as far in riding as I possibly can before that happens. So I was in this massive hurry to, to become successful in my equestrian career and sort of on this, this bucket list uh, of things to accomplish. And I'm really glad that I, that I, and it was the therapy that I needed at the time. Like they, I think it's uh, Winston Churchill that says there's something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man. And a, or a woman. <laughs> and um, it really was was the the right energy and the right focus that I needed to kind of just kind of not ignore, but just sort of have a different area of, of focus than than worrying about if and when I was going to lose my sight. Because before that, I was waking up every morning because they were convinced that it was going to go very quickly, my vision, based on my early diagnosis and the fact that it was it had progressed so quickly over the course of three weeks before I finally saw a doctor. 
so they were convinced it was going to happen within a year. So I was like, oh my gosh, it's like talk about bucket list things that you want to do before. Yeah, like, that's super fast. Things to see before you can't see. So I was like, well, I want to do this. I want to do this. And I was like, gosh, well, I don't know if I can ride after I lose my sight. So let me try to do this as quickly as possible. And that's, that's kind of what I, what I did. And I'm really glad that I did. And, and every year, you know, technology kept getting better and the drugs kept getting better to manage my disease. So we kept buying another year and another year, another six months. And I finally got health insurance and yeah, so I was able to manage my disease a lot better and slow it down. Wow. And so, so the steroids that ultimately made you gain all that weight, that actually helped slow down the vision loss? It did. It did. With the steroids, I gained 75 pounds. And so I felt like a weird version of myself or I didn't feel like myself. And, and um, I was grateful to be able to be able to get in the pool and feel, you know, more able-bodied, if you will. Yeah. So, so does that like, as you, as you got into the, into the water and you're, you're starting to feel better and, and you're starting to swim and, and then from that spun into the cycling and, and all, all those things, like what, was it ever a thought in your mind, like I'm going to become an athlete or was it solely just to like take off the weight and, and feel back to just normal Amy? Honestly, it was to lose the weight and feel back to normal Amy. I had no aspirations of becoming an athlete. Uh, I just, I just wanted to, to be Amy again at that point. I'd never even done a triathlon. I, actually, I shouldn't say that. I was a lifeguard when I was in high school and, and in college. And so I think I'd done one triathlon on a dare. And I, I don't think I was sober. So. <laughs> nice. Quite the introduction. So what? Yeah. Okay, so you get a tandem bike. You're kind of starting these things. How did it come into competition? Was it like just, oh, fun, we're going to try this and, and see how it goes? Or what? I, I guess, how did it all start? Well, I, I did this, this local race in, in New York and my whole family came and, and uh, the race director, as it turns out, he happened to be very involved with Challenge Athlete Foundation. So he was very familiar with para-athletes and I was so nervous and he was so sweet and supportive and, um, you know, made, made a special award for us and just made it a really special day and, and had this great presentation at the end of the race. And I thought, wow, like I can still do this with this different body and this different ability and just in a, in a, in a different way. And, and it wasn't that different than everybody else on the course. And every time we passed somebody on the tandem bike, people were cheering for us. And when I crossed the finish line, there was like hundreds of people waiting for me. And I was like, gosh, this is so, what a cool community of people. And I didn't feel like pitied or anything like that. I just felt really supported and like one of, one of the guys, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that was really what I wanted to feel like. I wanted to feel like just a regular person out there swimming, biking, running. And um, triathlon has definitely been able to give that to me because, I, you know, I don't do anything differently other than I, do, I get the benefit of having somebody next to me to talk to. <laughs> well, yeah. Were you, were you already doing it with guides at that point or were you still doing some of it on your own? No, it was entirely with guides. Yeah. At that point, my vision was too to uh, compromise. Well, okay. I have to ask, cause like I get the tandem bike, like you're riding with somebody on the same like bike and then I, I get the running, you're tethered together, but swimming tethered, that just, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a diver. I don't swim. I'm not cardiovascular like you at all. <laughs> like I am just, I am quick twitch. Um, you know, that's kind yep. of, that's kind of it for yep. me. But, um, but being attached to somebody in the water, the sound of that just freaks me out. Was that scary to try at first? Um, no, actually it was really comforting because I don't like the ocean very much and I don't like swimming <laughs> in lakes because the visibility sucks. And so like, I really like pools where you can see the bottom and know what's around you at all times. I like the fact that there was somebody right next to me that if I had a panic attack, I could just clutch up, clutch onto them like a monkey. <laughs> like, like, ah, something's eating me. Something touched me. Ah. <laughs> Like nothing to do with my blindness, everything to do with the fact that I was a big chicken. Um, so, so it was really comforting actually having somebody swim next to me. I loved it. And the fact that they had to be tied to me was like, they're not going to leave me alone out here. So <laughs> I was like, great. I feel super safe. <laughs> okay. That's funny. Oh gosh. That's so funny. Well, so what yeah. year was that, that you did your first triathlon? Uh, 2013. Okay. And so that leading up, I mean, was, was all of a sudden like, wow, I'm going to try for the Paralympics or how did that start to come? No. Out? So then I like, let, you know, I got invited by Achilles International. Achilles is a disabled track club in New York city. Actually, they're, they're all over the country and the world, but, uh, their main focus is New York city. And they, their main, uh, objective is New York city Mar marathon and New York city triathlon and New York city triathlon. is an Olympic distance race. My first race is a sprint distance race. And so this next race is going to be twice the distance. And they invited me to come and do it with a guide. And so, so I thought, well, why not? You know, like I've done a shorter one, let's try a longer one. 
And I loved it. And I had so much fun. And I thought, well, you know, me, and I, I actually finished on the podium and I got a little bit of my first taste of money. And I was like, oh, I got $500. It's pretty cool. Certainly didn't cover the expenses, but it was neat to, to get a check back. <laughs> right. So then I uh, started just doing more and more races. And then USA Triathlon, I guess the their formula at the time was if you finish uh, any USA Triathlon uh, sanctioned event, within 30% of the winning time of the current national championships um, finishing time at nationals, uh, you get um, what's put on the emerging team or, or like a watch list, if you will. Oh, cool. And so they invited me out to an emerging athlete camp down in Baltimore, Maryland, where they did all kinds of um, testing on us and, you know, VO2 max and all kinds of things. And so, and I guess the data from there uh, was encouraging enough for them to say, Hey, listen, we're going to invite you out to a couple of camps and, you know, here's some races that we think you should go to. We're not going to give you any money to go to them, but like, if you can fund yourself to get there, like, you know, we would love to have you kind of thing and see how you do. And, so that was in the early stages. So I went to the Pan American Championships, which luckily happened to be in Dallas, Texas. So it was a little bit more affordable. And that was my first international race. And I did that with the guy that I had raced my first triathlon with. And again, we finished on the podium. And uh, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Like I might be halfway decent at this. And so then I just started fundraising to try to get my own bike. And luckily, a really nice couple donated a bike or loan gave me a semi-permanent loan of a bike that uh, tan, a very nice tandem bike that, that they had built for themselves and weren't using until I could afford one of my own because tandems are quite expensive. I did my next race in Brazil and won that race. And then, so then I just started uh, getting a little bit more recognition from USA triathlon. I made the national team in 2000 and first year I made national team. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. So did you consider trying to do the 2016 Paralympics or was, or were you just kind of I, on? Well, I was on, like, yes, I was, I was training for, for Rio and I was ranked number five, four in the world at the time. Oh, wow. It was heartbreaking because, um, I had been training and I'd been, you know, racing really well and had won, uh, several big races leading up to it. Um, I had an issue with a guide and had to switch guides mid season, which was not ideal mm -hmm. and was scrambling to find a new guide. And I luckily met Suzanne Davis who lives out here in Carlsbad in San Diego and started racing with her and having really, really good success. And, um, the way that it works for selection for for para triathlon is that you have to be ranked in, in the top 10 in the world in order to earn your country a slot. Okay. And there can only be two Americans. Right. So um, there are three Americans. There's myself, Patricia, and Liz. Uh, Patricia and I were both ranked fourth and fifth in the world. And so we earned the United States two slots. There could be a third slot added, but it was a um, provisional slot that was determined by the, the uh, IOC, basically. They, they vote on like these bipartite slots where they add them at, you know, after the, the rosters and it's based on your ranking and it's based on your current you know, current races, make sure that you're racing well, you know, like finishing on the podium at your last couple of races kind of thing. So I earned the country slot, but not myself. And so I went to the Pan American Championships and whoever finished top two or um, whoever won that race was going to get one of the two slots. I ended up finishing second to uh, Liz. And even though Liz was ranked number 14th in the world at the time, she got to go. Uh, um, because she beat me at that race. And so, and I think that selections is, is very similar in swimming. Like, unfortunately it comes down to one day, you know, like you can, you can have a phenomenal season and be number one in the world, but if you have a bad day at, you know, Olympic trials, it's, you know, you're yep. done. Yep. Diving's so, just like that. Yeah. We have to qualify country spots at world championships, world cup as well. And so even if you get the spot, you still have to come back to the trials and compete for that spot. So I totally understand where you're coming from there. Yeah. So I, I was, devastated. And um, the challenge, one of the many challenges was that um, Team USA was saying, listen, you know, you're the highest ranked athlete in any category. So the, in paratriathlon, there's a few different categories. There's wheelchair, amputee, and blind categories. Base, that's the, a basic break, breakdown of it. And so of, of all those categories, uh, male or female, I was the highest ranked athlete in the world who wasn't going to the games. And so they're like, oh, you know, they're giving out uh, 17 slots, you'll definitely get one. Continue training and, you know, working hard. And then a few weeks later, I actually won a major race in, in Japan uh, and beat the girl that had beaten me for my slot. So I was like, ah, which was almost heartbreaking, more heartbreaking because 
if she had beaten me there, at least I would have felt a lot better about, you know, losing to her at, at Pan Ams and like, okay, but I was just devastated because I knew that I had it in me. I just didn't have to say that I wanted it at the trials. So kept training, you know, Team USA kept saying, you're going, you're going, don't worry. And they announced the slots and they gave it out to um, Japan, Canada, and Ireland. They gave they gave the slots to for my category. And I was devastated because those girls were ranked like 13th, 17th, and 18th in the world. And it was because they wanted more countries represented in my category. Uh, they felt that there were already two Americans and they didn't want a third. And that was it. So I was just happy to be from the wrong country. I was like, man, I should just go marry my Canadian boyfriend right now. <laughs> Shoot. So I was, but again, then that was July 8th of 2016. You know, the games were going to be September 11th. So the team kept saying, keep training, keep training, because now there's a rumor that the Russians are going to be banned and there's going to be more slots opening up. And if you didn't get a bipartite slot, you'll definitely get a, a slot with the, um, with the Russians being banned. So I was like a mess in tears, fetal position on the couch, didn't want to train. Like my friends are dra- like coming to make sure that I'm okay every day and sleeping in my apartment on the couch to make sure, because I wasn't, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. I was just, I was devastated because um, I'd worked so hard and I had no sponsor, you know, financial sponsorship. So I put myself in a massive debt trying to get there and to get to be ranked number four in the world and then to not go was just like beyond my comprehension. I was like, I don't understand how can you be ranked fourth in the world and not be going to the big, big dance. And um, it just wasn't something I could even wrap my head around and it just didn't seem fair. I mean, it, you know, and unfortunately it, as we know, sports not always fair. And uh, so I, uh, you know, my friends were just dragging me out to get some workouts and just try, try to keep moving. They're like, don't worry when the Russians get banned, you're going to go. And my whole family is trying to, you know, think about buying tickets last minute and all this stuff. And then the Russians got banned. And again, they they chose like four men and they didn't take any women. So I was like, and we're done. (laughs) So I ended up actually flying to uh, Cozumel because age group world championships was taking place down there uh, on the same day that the Paralympics was happening. And my sports psychologist is like, listen, you've been busting your ass. You have all this fitness. You need to race somewhere. Like, and it has to be something big. It can't be like a local mom and pop race. You need to go bust out like a good race. He's like, I don't care if you're the only person in the race. He's like, you got to do it. And it was, he was right. It was the smartest decision I ever made. And so like, I, I literally, my normal guide wasn't available to go to this race. So I found a backup guide who actually is just a super fun girl that I love. And I was like, she's going to be a great traveling companion. We're going to go drink margaritas in Mexico and we're going to go race. Like, screw it. Like, I'm just going to go have fun. And literally all my competition was in, in Rio. So like I had no competition there. So it was like, here I am. I'm going to win a world champion. So I'm going to win a world championship against no one, but who cares? And so I literally went and I did an aquathon, which I had never done. It's a run, swim, run, which is a really weird race. So I had no experience doing that or how to pace it, but neither did my guide. And we're like, let's just go have fun. And so we won obviously. And, and, um, well, not obviously, but we won and it was just exactly what I needed to have a little bit of closure on what was obviously a really, really hard, hard year for me. So how, how did you move on from there? Like, I'm glad you got that kind of closure you needed and listening to sports psychologists, always a good idea just for everybody listening. Yes. <laughs> um, they yeah. know what they're talking about. So how did you move on past that point and decide to continue going for another four years? Because you like, you, okay. well, okay. so you are still going and you are now 44, like we talked about earlier. And, yeah. uh, and I can relate because I'm right behind you. But so you're, you're still training and you're, you're going for Tokyo. And what, what kind of changed that mindset for you to, to keep going? My goal was to get to the big dance and like, it's like, okay, if it's not in Rio, it's going to be in Tokyo. And I thought, well, this is batshit crazy. Like I have no money to do this. How am I going to figure this out? And I thought, well, I had been going back and forth to Chula Vista to the Olympic training center out here uh, in San Diego. And I really loved it out here. And a lot of the women that I was training with lived out here. And my guide, Suzanne at the time was out here as well. Mm -hmm. And I got to know like a lot of people in the community. I got dialed in with some running groups and, and a, a good master swim group out here. And there's something called the Blind Stokers Club, which is a big tandem cycling club out here. So I had lots of uh, pilots to ride with on the tandem. And Challenge Athlete Foundation has their headquarters out here. So all signs were pointing to like, you know what? I've lived within 30 to 45 minutes of my family my entire life, all 41 years at that point. 
and I'm like, this is going to be really, really hard. But if I want to be really vested and do the best thing I can to really give this everything I have, I'm going to move out to San Diego, which was so hard. Again, like I've always lived within a half an hour of my mom. And, you know, she had been, I've gone through, fast forward as far as my eye disease is concerned, I went through steroid treatment and then I ended up having to go through chemotherapy, which is the next progression. Once the steroids stop working, the next level of drugs is to suppress your immune system with chemo. And it's, you know, a lesser dose than you would take for cancer, but still pretty detrimental. And I I ended up with a malignancy caused by one of the drugs that I was on. So I ended up with malignant melanoma. At wait, that wait, point, wait, 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 wait. So you took chemo and got cancer. And ended up with that. cancer. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, the cancer drugs that cause cancer. They don't tell you. Well, it, one of the known side effects of this particular drug was, drug was that it caused uh, lymphoma and melanoma. And so it was a count. But at that point, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I was told that that's a very small risk, blah, blah, blah. Well, it wasn't. And I ended up with a malignancy. And at this point, I looked at the doctors and I was like, listen, nobody died from losing their eyesight, <laughs> like unless they fall off a bridge. So <laughs> I said, let's, let's, let's be real about this. I'm like, you know, the cure is definitely worse than the disease. And so at that point, again, the, the goal always was to slow the disease down enough that technology would catch up with it. And at that point, I went to Boston with my mom to go see this uh, specialist. He was a top specialist in the world, still is, for my disease. And he had worked with um, Bausch & Lohm to produce uh, an implant that goes inside the eye that actually is a time-release steroid capsule that releases steroid right into the right directly into the back of the eye that's crazy so i had the surgery um at yale new haven hospital uh with one of the residents that had worked on the clinical trials with him and it was a huge success and so my disease was stable uh immediately and the the implants last three years so then you just need to get replaced every three years but i ended up developing glaucoma uh, which is a side effect of having high-dose steroid directly inside the eye. But glaucoma is fairly treatable. But I've had 33 surgeries over the past uh, seven years. Wow. Yeah, to control my disease. So the surgeries have been really difficult to manage, especially now with a professional triathlon career, because I have to time them if I can, if they're not emergent, you know, after my season is over and it can be a four to six week recovery. So while most athletes are working hard, like doing base training and in the gym and hitting the weights a little bit harder in the off season, like I'm on the couch watching Netflix, you know, dealing recovering from eye surgery because I can't move. So that has been a huge disadvantage to me in the off season. So we, you know, the goal has been trying to, trying to get my disease under control so that I have a whole year without having to, to have surgery and knock on wood, I've made it a whole year, but I planned everything around Tokyo happening this summer. And so now we're kind of up the creek again because I'm going to have to have surgery in November or December this year and it's going to interfere with the ramp up to Tokyo. Like like how much so? Uh, good question. I don't know. The problem is the more you operate on the eye, the more difficult it becomes because it's a very you know delicate tissues and it doesn't really like people going in and out of it very often. So it becomes very unstable. So I've had a lot of problems after, you know, with post-op complications the eye is like a basketball that needs a certain amount of PSI inside of it to, to stay inflated. It um, actually needs uh, 10 millimeters of mercury uh, of pressure. Just to give you a frame of reference, like bike, like a mountain bike tire would be like 25 PSI. So my problem is that they actually have to poke a hole in my eye because my pressure has been too high. It was in the 50s. But once they did that, now my pressure is too low and it bottomed out at zero and I had a retinal detachment. So they tr- are trying to reinflate the eye. And with training, you dehydrate naturally as an athlete because you're, you're excreting water from your body, including your eye. So my eye is constantly deflating every time I train really hard. So I have to make sure that I stay almost overly hydrated and be very mindful of my eye and, and, keep, and literally keep an eye on it. And I have to keep like almost like a pressure gauge on me at all times to check my pressure if it gets too low. Wow. I, okay. When we first got on, before we started recording, you told me you were surprised I could make the time to do this with a family and training and for kids. But here you are, like not only having to train at an elite level as an older athlete, which is like a whole other level, but you're also having to deal with surgeries constantly. I mean, watching your eye pressure, all of this stuff. I mean, and yet your motto is you don't you don't need to have sight to have vision. Like, tell me a little bit about how you keep that kind of mantra like going when you have all of these challenges in front of you. 
I have the one of the, and I'm sure you can express the same thing is that one of the most amazing things of being involved in Olympic and Paralympic sport is that you're surrounded by incredibly inspiring people with amazing stories of their own, like military veterans that have lost legs over in Afghanistan and Iraq. And like, you know, like Brad Snyder, who you just interviewed, uh, who lost his vision over there, Olympic divers with incredible comeback stories like yourself. And and, and, you know, Greg Luganis and all these amazing people out there. And it's like, you can't help but be inspired and, and be lifted up by all of this. So I actually was invited to the Boston Marathon um, to run the 5K because I'm a, I'm a sprint athlete. It'd be, it'd be like you going out and, you know, doing cliff diving and be like, you know what? That's not really my thing. But, you know, like, but, but they're like, come on out. You're like, yeah, no, I'm good. So <laughs> it's like 10 meters, kind of my cutoff. Um, <laughs> so... But so I was like, oh, okay, I'll come out and I'll do the 5K. And they had this um, preview of a documentary that was going to be, be uh, released before the Boston Marathon about a blind runner who ran the circumference of um, Puerto Rico. And so one of my friends, he's totally blind and he's this amazing hiker and he, he like hikes the White Mountains with his wife. And she's amazing as far as describing like the terrain and telling him where to step and things like that. I'm always so fascinated how he navigates with no vision at all. By the way, just as a fun fact for your listeners, 95% of people who are blind, quote unquote, actually have some residual vision. So like may, may be able to see shapes and colors. They may be, uh, may be able to read and recognize faces and just have tunnel vision like I do. But 95% of people who are blind or legally blind have some residual vision. Only 5% are totally black blind. And that's usually from some sort of trauma or a birth def- or like, or they've been blind since birth and they have a birth defect. Randy was in that 5%. So he asked me before the documentary, he said, there's actually a lot of blind, totally blind runners here. He says, we have 15 people who have no sight whatsoever. Would you do me the honor of being the audio describer of the movie for us? Because like now a lot of movies have what's called descriptive audio where you can put on like, it's like almost like a closed captioning, but for people who are blind. So it tells you, okay, there's a bad guy hiding behind a door and he's creeping around and it's very dark. And there's, you can see a bird in the corner of the window and, and he's raising his ax and the woman is looking the other way. And I'm like, so, so all these things um, to describe what's happening on the screen. So mm-hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. Um, what a huge responsibility and huge pressure. And he's like, well, you have good central vision. He's like, so he goes, I think you can do it. And he goes, you certainly like to talk. And so, <laughs> I was like, yeah. let's, so I was like, okay, let's give it a go. And so I got to describe this movie to everybody. And it was such a huge weight of responsibility. But when I was done, it was like, so cool and so fun because you know the guy was like running in the middle of the night and his mother was he's visually impaired his mother was following him in a Subaru outback with the, the headlights on and he's pushing a baby jogger stroller to guide him with headlights on it like it's pouring rain and you can see his shoes are covered in blood because his toenails have like completely fallen off oh my goodness and the rain is just dripping off the, his visor down his face and you can see he's like covered in mud and sweat and it so I'm describing all this to everybody and the movie got done and, and a couple of the guys that were totally blind came up to me. And they're like, Oh, that was such a great movie. That was so awesome. And I was like, how do you know? You didn't see it. They're like, no, I, I did. Cause you, you told me everything that was happening. And he's like, I, I did get to see it just in a different way. And so that for me was so uplifting and inspiring in that I knew that no matter what happened, cause you know, I am going to be totally blind at some point. Cause you know, it's, it's a progressive disease and I'm fighting an uphill battle and, I'm the first patient over the age of 40 that has any usable vision with this diagnosis. Wow. So I know I'm like an outlier and I'm on borrowed time at this point. And I'm, I'm able to see due to the miracle of all the surgeries that I've had and, and, and aggressive treatment. But again, that can change at any moment. Like, you know, that, that like something happens with my vision tomorrow and I'll wake up and I just won't be able to see. And so that's a reality that I face on a daily basis, but I no longer just give it power. I, I know that like, after meeting and spending time with people like that, I know what the other side looks like and that it's not all bad. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Oh, I love that so much. T- tell me about, you also created a camp called No Sight, No Limits. Tell me about that. I did. So one of, and I'm sure you felt this too, like uh, having worked with different coaches over the years, I was a little frustrated at the, at the lack of knowledge that coaches in the Paralympic pipeline had as far as dealing with blind athletes. They didn't know how to coach them specifically because 90% of our teammates on Team USA are mostly wheelchair or amputee athletes. Like there's only a few blind athletes on the team. Um, there's more now, but in the beginning there were, were not, 
that many. There's only like the two or three of us. And so they were like, okay, you guys kind of go do whatever it is you do together <laughs> like, and we'll regroup. And I was like, well, isn't there some sort of instruction like, you know, or some nuances like where the tether can be positioned that might be faster than another or like what are the rules as far as like running around corners together? Is she allowed to hold my hand? Is she allowed to grab my elbow? What happens? What's the fastest way to swim next to each other so that I catch the best draft off of her hip or is it off of her shoulder? How do we navigate buoys together, you know, and communicate that in the water most efficiently? And they're like, oh, well, we'll do whatever works best for you. I'm like, well, that's, I don't know what the hell like, I'm That's doing. what I'm trying to and learn. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to learn. So there was nobody to learn from except for other blind athletes who were also figuring it out for themselves. And it was sort of like very anecdotal. And so I thought, gosh, I'm like, I'm no expert, but I'm, I'm an expert at being blind. So like, I, I can certainly coach this and certainly tell people what not to do <laughs> and, and what's worked for me in the past. And so I decided to take matters into my own hand and start a, a camp specifically focused on high performance blind triathlon. I didn't want to do beginners because Challenge Athlete Foundation and Dare to Try out in Chicago does a great intro to triathlon as far as like, here's your first triathlon. Here's how to swim, bike and run tethered. I wanted to show people, okay, now that you've done that, here's a faster way to do it. Like, it may not be the fastest because I'm still learning. I'm, you know, I'm still in the process of becoming the best athlete I can be, but here's what's worked for me and some of my competitors. I, whether you want to do a sprint distance triathlon or you want to be an Ironman visually impaired athlete, whatever it is, I want to help you get faster and, and more efficient and be safer. And so that's how, that's how I started Camp No Sight, No Limits. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. And some some people think they have to have all the answers in order to help other people. But sometimes if we're just a little bit ahead of somebody else and we, we can give them that instruction, it can change everything for them too. So I, I love that you're like, I may not have all the answers, but I'm going to help you get better. You know, I mean, that's all we, we yeah. really want, right? Is to be better than we are now. <laughs> exactly. And I'm always so amazed by you because it's funny. I, I laugh. Um, I dove in high school, but I was horrible. I was a place filler because I honestly, I was an average swimmer at best. You know, I was, I was a breaststroker and a backstroker and occasionally would get thrown into a relay if I was forced to. And I, it was my, I guess, freshman year of high school. And I was, again, pretty average in some practice. And one of the girls got injured in the diving squad. And I, I was screwing around on the board, like doing flips and stuff like that and, um, and doing some back dives and pikes and whatever. And then the, the coach was like, hey, have you ever thought about diving? I'm like, no. <laughs> Cause I'm really chicken. Like when it comes to stuff like that, like I, I have a very small, you know, level of comfort and he's like, you should, you should dive. And it, like, actually it wasn't really a question. It was more like it, it was a, it was a command. <laughs> it was an order because I needed somebody as a place filler. So I literally, so I started diving and I was horrible and, it, but I, I did it. I was, I was never very comfortable and I dove all through high school and I, I laughed because I just never felt comfortable uh, diving, but I was never that fast of a swimmer either. I was sort of stuck in the middle. And I laugh now that I do it, that I swim professionally. So. That is pretty funny. Well, I, and I don't think we ever want to dive tethered together. I don't think that I would, I would offer to do synchro with you, but I, I feel yeah, like that would be a really no. dangerous opportunity. Yeah, no, it's a great way to hang yourself. <laughs> gosh. Oh my gosh. But yeah, it's been, it's definitely been, an adventure. And I'm, you know, right now I'm really lucky. I'm, I'm ranked number six in the world. And this time around, there's only two of us vying for the two slots and we're both ranked number five and six. And I'm good friends with my teammate in that we're sort of strategizing together to make sure we're not cannibalizing each other's efforts. We're both in our early forties and uh, you know, it's both of our sort of last dance. And so we want to make sure that we both get there and healthy if we can. So we're making sure that we're trying not to compete at some of the same races and things like that and, and making sure each of us is, is maximizing our points. So again, for next year, it's going to be based on top two Americans as long as there's two Americans in the top 10 and knock on wood. Uh, they froze the points for us uh, for qualification as of March 16th. So um, we don't know what the schedule looks like for next year, but if it looks like what it did this year, mathematically, I'll be in. Um, the biggest thing is, as you know, is staying healthy until I get to the starting line in Tokyo. And in some ways, it ended up being a blessing that I'm not in Tokyo this summer because I've, right now I've got a pretty nasty shoulder injury. I had a tailbone procedure two weeks ago. I ended up with kidney stones three weeks ago, and I ended up with an adrenal crisis three weeks ago. So I would not have been a healthy athlete <laughs> at the starting line in Tokyo this summer. I mean, granted, who knows, maybe my health would have been different, you know, had my training schedule been different. But again, a lot of those things were stress-induced injuries. You know, I, I, I ended up injuring my shoulder because 
I didn't listen to my body and I was frustrated because I couldn't really run or bike because of my tailbone for a couple of weeks. So I started increasing my swim volume, which started to aggravate my shoulder. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, swimming is the one thing I'm allowed to do right now. I have to swim. I have to swim. I have to swim because I don't want to lose fitness. Um, well, I, by forcing myself to, to work through pain, I ended up with a really pretty bad shoulder issue where I can't even lift my arm right now. So this anxiety that we have with this, this Olympic and Paralympic um, postponement really has created problems that I didn't imagine for myself. But at the same time, you know, it's also bought on the positive side, it's bought me an entire year of hopefully having consistent training, hopefully being healthy if I, if I make some good decisions going forward. And sometimes you can make all the right decisions, as you know, and still end up unhealthy or injured. Um, so the goal is to try to get to the starting starting line of the next race, whenever that happens, as healthy as possible. Right now, the only thing we have on the calendar for 2020, which has a 90% chance of getting canceled, is we have world championships scheduled October 3rd in Montreal. But the Canadian border is not open right now. So the likelihood of that race happening is super low. Oh, I understand that. But we, we do want to continue to follow and support you on your journey to Tokyo 2021. So how can we follow you and support you online? Yes. So no site, no limits uh, on Instagram and Amy Dixon Blind Athlete on, on um, what is it called? Facebook and uh, also no site, no limits on Twitter, although I don't tweet very much. And um, my website is amydixonusa.com. And so you can follow me and my ridiculous guide dog Woodstock there. He's a giant German shepherd that brings me a lot of comic relief and accompanies me to all my workouts. <laughs> he's, he's super cute. I've seen your pictures on Instagram. Um, I love to stalk people on Instagram and, and your pictures are adorable there. And I, I love the messages that you talk about too. So if anybody um, wants to be encouraged and just relate, like you are very honest and real on your Instagram posts. And I love that. So Amy, we will be cheering for you. Best of luck next year. And I hope we are watching you in Tokyo. Oh, thank you, Laura. I can't wait to see you next summer. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.